I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to Ruler Podcast 17.2. I'm Ian Parkinson and what a stylish edition of the podcast it is. In a minute we'll be hearing from the man behind some of the most stylish cycling clothes around, the Savile Row tailor Timothy Everest. And after that we'll be talking to the British road champion Hannah Barnes who happens to ride for the team whose kit is frequently voted best in the peloton, Canyon SRAM. Ian Cleverly, ruler editor, is with me. Um, plenty in the magazine this month. The uh, workman at Paris-Roubaix caught my eye. There's a nice article from Neb Bolting about a British couple who put pro teams up in their house in Belgium. Uh, anything else that really stands out uh, for you? I do actually like James Stout's piece um, about nutrition, <laughs> which <laughs> I know, and you kind of think, oh, um, but it's it, it, it's... The guy actually kind of raced abroad for a few seasons. He knows what he's talking about. He knows that um, there are a myriad of ludicrous myths that abound, um, that pass down through generations of cyclists who then become DSs or bosses. And uh, and he just sort of rips the whole thing. But I mean, he has great fun doing it and then actually takes, talks to somebody who knows what they're talking about at the end. Um, but yeah, that was a great fun piece. Anything else? Marshall Cabell's done a, a, a photo special of last year's Paris Nice, which was quite extraordinary. The so-called race to the sun, where one day was abandoned due to snow, and uh, obviously the day, the day featuring snow, um, uh, <laughs> led to the most uh, dramatic photos. But uh, it's a nice race anyway. And it does finally get some sun right at the end when they get down to Nice. Interestingly, in view of current events, there's actually two articles in this edition: one by Matt Seaton, one by Robert Miller, uh, which take us to the pretty sceptical view of the whole Team Sky and British cycling situation. Yeah, understandably. And uh, obviously with what's been going on in the last few days with the Parliamentary Commission, I mean, it, it, it just, it's a, it's a never-ending smorgasbord of, of horrifying kind of revelations, which shows no sign of, of ending. Matt Seaton um, very much sort of nails the myth, I suppose, that British riders don't do that and you know the foreigners may get up to that but uh, the British don't I think so I think that there's always been this British idea that oh gosh no we don't do that sort of thing and um it's it's now the whole the whole uh viewpoint has been very much called into question and uh well remains to be seen what we do what we do or don't do but the idea that just because you're British, uh, 
that you're not going to cheat is is uh, doesn't always stand up to close it examination. Doesn't always stand up to close examination. And if you, you haven't, <laughs> and if you haven't read it, uh, Robert Miller's piece towards the back of the magazine about uh, corticosteroids, about um, Kenalog, etc., and its use in the peloton in the eighties, and uh, you know when Robert was writing, is one of I think the best things I've read about the whole subject. Yeah, well, you know, he he knows what he's talking about, doesn't he? Um, as opposed to many who don't. So our first guest, Timothy Everest, one of Britain's most successful tailors. He did his apprenticeship with the legendary Tommy Nutter before setting up his own company. He's actually a keen cyclist and he's collaborated on cycling kit with Rafa, Brooks, David Miller's Chapter 3, among others. In this month's magazine, there's a photo shoot at his offices at Spitalfields in London. Uh, But I went along to talk to the man himself. Timothy Everest, welcome to the Ruler podcast. Thank you very much. We'll talk about your uh, clothing design and your involvement with various uh, cycling brands um, a little bit later. But uh, tell me about your own cycling. When did you actually first become a, a keen cyclist? Well, I always wanted to be a racing driver, actually. I was more interested in motorsport. But I remember watching a film um, on any Sunday, I think with Steve McQueen, many years ago. And there's loads of sort of BMX riding and that sort of thing. Not only the motorcycling, but that side took my interest. And uh, I was desperate to be uh, by um, a motocross, schoolboy motocross bike. And my parents wouldn't let me have one. Um, but they said, if you go and work and earn the money, you can buy one. And I didn't earn quite enough money. And I bought myself a pooch um, uh, racer which at that time I remember flogging across the countryside and it seemed to be a permanent headwind or crosswind. I never really, really enjoyed it. Um, And then I secretly bought, um, with a little bit of money that I earned, uh, a little moped and then I ended up with a schoolboy motocross. That was my intro to cycling. And has that interest continued ever since? Have you always been a cyclist? Yes, I have for a long time. And then I really kind of accelerated in my sort of uh, late 20s in the the start of the um, mountain bike scene. And I was working for a guy on Chilton Street. And these two guys turned up on these bikes called Muddy Foxes. And I said, what are they? I said, what are you riding those for? Oh, it's mountain biking. It's the really cool thing. They're all doing it in California. So I said, can I have a go on one? And I jumped onto it. This thing was really easy to ride and it sort of went off and that was quite cool. And then a friend of mine who'd cycled for years since he was a kid and there's been a big influence on cycling, has got many, many beautiful bikes. He, he, um, I met around that time as well and he was doing some work for my boss and he was talking about what cycling is very cool and sort of kind of got me into it. And cut a long story short, I ended up um, buying a, I think, Kona mountain bike, which I loved, a little bit heavy, but quite fun. And then doing the usual thing, going down to sort of Box Hill, Poles and Lacey, Leith Hill, all those sort of things and doing the trails with a sort of ragtag gang of people that I knew from around here. And uh, uh, it became uh, a lot of fun. And then we sort of started importing things like rock shocks and Manitou forks and things from, from Bike Pro and Santa Rosa, kind of pre-internet. Um, so I had to do everything through the phone and the mail. Um, and that was quite exciting. The only problem is uh, sort of a, a sort of jaunt out in the country became very, very competitive. And it was who could get there the fastest. So then we started racing in some early bike uh, races which I really really enjoyed. And do you now mainly uh, ride on the road or are you um, still mountain biking as well? Well I I started the business and riding around on the mountain bike even with fat boy slicks wasn't so convenient so I stopped cycling for about five years. Anyhow I decided I'd like to start cycling again so I got my last mountain bike out which was an orange with its uh, early pace forks on it set it up for the road and was cycling around and um, that must be about eight years ago nine years ago and then I was introduced to uh, Luke and Simon from Rafa 
and then yeah I had a I had a problem with it and um, I went into a bike shop locally and I, had a, I said can I have a go on the road bikes there's quite a few people riding those at the moment I'd like to have a go on one of those um, specialized Roubaix and had a go on it and again just realized what a what a joy it was to ride a road bike the geometry was not dissimilar to what I was used to on a traditional kind of mountain bike and I started cycling again and as we've been talking to Rafa we had a conversation about possibly creating something clothing wise um, I got more and more into it and rekindled my um, my my interest in cycling. I remember uh, Simon Simon Mottram of Rafa once saying that uh, you know when he started cycling he looked at British cycling and its style and thought it was very uh, monochrome and quite dull and he wanted to bring the some of the colour and the glamour of the continental um, scene to British cycling. Uh, what were your thoughts about the sort of the style and the clothing of cyclists in in those days? Well, it's very interesting when we were cycling in, um, in, in the late 80s and early 90s. Uh, I cycled with a guy called Jerry Aaron who went on to set up Mud Dock. And he almost described what Rafa would be. And that's he was kind of his vision. And it was actually quite monochromatic. No one's doing sort of like sort of dangerous sort of black clothing and, and all these things. So when we were sort of hiking up a hill or whatever, we'd have these long conversations about what are the clothing, what clothing can you have? Because at that time, there were lots of brands. I mean, there's Castelli and I've actually got some stuff from there. It's quite wild. Uh, and I think Alpine Stars and people like that were doing stuff for mountain biking. But if you came herring around a corner in this sort of fluoro stuff, you'd scare someone straight off their horse or whatever. Um, but no one was actually looking at what you could actually wear in those conditions and maybe go to the pub or have a meeting or whatever so we kind of talked about it many many years before um, and uh, I think what happens when I got back into cycling I discovered clothing through Rafa which I found was actually very wearable very very cool very simple and on that early journey of where they were going was very interesting and then of course then I started to read up about things and we tried to start to explore about the possibilities and one of the things I liked about British cycling was I think there was a thing called the Stealth Series many years ago where the cycling was so popular uh, and people were having their own sort of made-up races that uh, they were the, the police were on the lookout for them. So people were actually wearing civvies, you know, um, like a jacket and trousers probably rolled up on the right leg and still racing so that they could uh, try and tell the, the law that they weren't or, uh, you know, the, the, the rosas that they weren't actually racing. It was certainly the first um, involvement with Rafa of yours that I was uh, aware of, I think, was, was the um, bespoke cycling suit. Can you remind us about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, we can't remember how we actually met, but they ended up coming here um, to Elder Street, where we're sitting today, our lovely Georgian house in Spitalfields. And they were saying, well, what could we, you know, what could you cycle in that you could actually go to a meeting or, you know, go out for lunch or something? And I think at that time, they were kind of feeling their way where the handwriting, the brand was going. So the jacket we did was probably, uh, although it was, it had a nanotechnology, it was very practical. It had a nod to a more of a, the heritage of a jacket. Whereas I think after we'd been working on it and, and someone was very, uh, always interested to have conversations. I always felt that their hub probably was looking at kind of contemporary and clean and modern, and that was probably their kind of handwriting. We talked a lot about early 80s kind of designers like Izzy Miyake and Yoji Yamamoto about how they looked at sort of uh, traditional clothing in a more contemporary way. And maybe the jacket we were doing needed to morph into something a little bit more technical and more simple. 
Um, but uh, that's how we started. Well, it was very successful. We had a sell, sell out of 100%. And uh, it was a really good intro to our next venture, which was Brooks England. Yeah, how did that come about? Because you, you, you ended up working uh, with the sort of Brooks offshoot, uh, John Boltby. And the problem they had is they couldn't use Brooks on clothing um, in the sense that uh, Brooks uh, America owned the, um, the rights to that. So we came up with the idea of John Boltby, the founder of Brooks and created the idea of the John Boltby collection. I wanted to sort of make a statement with sort of the ultimate kind of garment that I thought I thought that someone should be looking at cycling where possibly you would go cycling in it, but you could use this garment in everyday wear. You know, having been interested in motorbikes and I still have a Bellstaff um, Trials Master, you know, and Barber obviously now making things that you can actually wear on a motorbike and on bicycles of the collaboration they did with the Japanese gentleman. I thought it was important that we made this kind of all singing and dancing garment that was a kind of benchmark for a more democratic prof- product to come. It's a really sort of compelling idea, that idea that you can dress um, well for uh, the bike and for the office or for uh, wherever or for a night out. It's really hard to pull off, though, isn't it? And you look around, uh, particularly sort of, you know, London cyclists, it doesn't seem to have caught on necessarily. Um, Not in London, because it still is the computer Grand Prix, or commuter Grand Prix, I should say. The mammals still are racing to and from work. I come in from Kingston Hill, so it's about 12 and a half, 13 miles. So it's difficult not to wear something that doesn't have a little bit of gear, if it is, you know, suitable for our inclement or temperate aisle. Uh, type of weather um, so it is a compromise and I think uh, what is interesting actually talking to David when he um, uh, was bought a Brompton and then he suddenly realized it's actually not about racing everywhere it's actually the journey then you start to think about what you could wear in that journey and we had a meeting a few weeks ago and he turned up in his Brompton checked it into Little House so House in, in Barclay Square or just off there Curzon Street and uh sitting there not in a sweat. And he said, it's a real treat not to have to race somewhere. And he said, I thought about it. All these guys went piling past me in their Lycra and they're probably showering as in, in the office now, having got up and left earlier than me and we were having a meeting and a nice cup of coffee and some poached eggs on toast. And that's kind of interesting as to, I think people, I think we'll start to get that you don't actually have to race everywhere. And then the, the clothing can come together. I still think someone hasn't yet captured the idea, I know it's a pun, um, that the hub of cycling, that, you you know, who no one's really doing a proper collection that you could be cycling in that's not following the peloton. They're, a lot of them are still looking at a technical angle. It's an argument with someone I'm having at the moment, which is not their personal style, it's their previous style. And they want everything to be super technical. But we did an awful lot of research when we were doing Brooks. It was very interesting um, when I think Outlier as a brand was taking off, is that when we spoke to people on forums, a lot of people who were going to wear practical clothing didn't necessarily, necessarily need to have, uh, you know, to, to roll up the leg with a special strap or to have something overly reflective or whatever. They wanted something that was actually comfortable, um, that possibly was showerproof, maybe does have, uh, take that back, a touch reflective, but they just said you can roll the leg up. You don't have to do any more than that. And that's very, very interesting. You want things that are still elegant but practical. Do you think they do it better in Europe? I think they do because they're used to commuting. I mean, if you go, I was in Florence recently. If you go around there, people go from A to B. Um, and they use a bike um, conveniently, Amsterdam, Berlin, and so on. And I think they're more used to it. I think we are quite unique in the way that we commute. You mentioned David there, uh, David Miller. Mm. And uh, that sort of 
uh, I guess, one of your latest collaborations, isn't it? Because you've been very much involved in David Miller's uh, Chapter 3 clothing. Well, it's, it's very much him and, and Richard, and, and at the moment it's uh, a collaboration with Castelli, which is going very, very well. And I think it's a, it's a nice alternative to Rafa. I think that's the good thing. There's room for other brands. I think there are people who buy both brands and other brands as well. And I think there's niches within niches. Um, so Castelli seems to have got off to quite a good start. And we help particularly with Richard talking through what that journey could be. Um, they've developed with that. And we've worked with the Gabba and other things, getting sort of the fit um, and detailing right on that. The idea that, you know, a gentleman would have the colour on the inside not on the outside was quite important you know as he said he's been basically a billboard um, all his life he wants to actually be not invisible but basically be more subtle so that's why the whole sort of you know the base layers are really really bright and those things rather than the outside although they're adding color and then more recently they're doing a project with Brompton and we've done a Brompton chapter three cycling jacket which is based on a jacket that we did for David for the Brompton races around the Mall. Um, and he said, what, what should we do? And I said, I, I don't know, what do you think? And we had a chat about it. And, and then, um, Mike Hellwood sprung to mind. And I think Nigel Cable some years ago did a tribute to him. But also they used to wear some kind of Harrington, which then they would wear the bottoms, which is like a split overalls. And we thought it'd be quite funny. And then uh, David pinged me an image of um, uh, Mike Hellwood wearing it with a bow tie. He said, you know, I've got to wear some kind of tie. And I said, well, why don't we do a bow tie and that? And we'll pimp it up a bit. And then the next thing we were trading images. And I think he sent one sort of the, uh, the Bonneville um, time trials. You know, um, and there's someone on an old Indian with a sort of big Indian logo on the back. So, so I sent him a, uh, a sort of rendering where we'd drawn up something on the computer, which was ice blue sort of ventile. Um, um, from the, our factory that we work up in North London. Uh, one of the challenges that always strikes me for uh, making um, cycling clothing, especially for, you know, not for professionals, must be that it's actually quite hard to make um, men look attractive or stylish in, in Lycra in particular, isn't it? Unless you are built like David Miller or even perhaps, I don't know, Mario Cipollini or someone. It's, <laughs> it doesn't flatter uh, the average male figure. No, it doesn't, unfortunately, and that's the problem. This is probably one of the debates I've been having with somebody that some kind of a, a jacket always kind of does work. It's just about the right kind of sort of fit and so on. Some kind of Mac works. And it, 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 certain things work and there's a reason why they work. It, but it's, the, it's about, I think, exploring those that then are very practical. And, and Lycra's fine and it's perfect. If you are doing, you know, going out for a serious ride and whatever, can't really beat some of those sort of those things. You're not going to, you know, you're not going to be very comfortable. But I, I think that's what's starting to happen is that once people get into cycling, I, I as I said, started in mountain biking. Then I've discovered road biking. I'm now doing a bit of mountain biking. I really want to get a, um, get into cyclocross and kind of find that's rather appealing um, my wife pointed out we've got 14 bicycles at home which is ridiculous uh, but both my daughters cycle as well um, so I, I'll take uh, they can take two of those bikes um, but is that we're now realizing that bikes are you know you different bikes for different occasions well why wouldn't you have your wardrobe like that so what's your next um, big project sort of cycling related well hopefully we can develop the apres side as we've called it with david um, his brief was what do i wear on the sofa with my kids in girona and take uh, missus out for a posh tapas supper i was at a hotel recently and you know i'm pretty casually dressed these days i, I still wear a tie not that often but i was at a hotel um and i, I was 
try to be casual but elegant and I was surprised by a lot of people who looked and this is I don't want to be judgmental but because I think there's still confusion in the menswear market people look like they just got off the sofa having watched Gogglebox or something because that's how they're very good it's fine and that's what you want to do but what happens when you see somebody who walks in who's casual but elegant you can see these people feeling uncomfortable and they either think oh well I wish I was like that or they have to make a comment because they feel inadequate. I think there's confusion in clothing, not just in cycling world. The Savile Row tailor, Timothy Everest. Um, Hannah Barnes is one of the UK's most successful cyclists at the moment, national road champion, second in the World Time Trial Championships last year, uh, riding for the World Tour team Canyon SRAM. And she joins us on the line now. Uh, Hannah, where are you? Um, Right now I'm in Girona in Spain. And is that where you're you're based for most of the season? Yeah, this is is home for for me from now on really been the last two years I've spent here and then yeah this is pretty much where I spend all my time it's extraordinary how Girona has sort of become the uh, the absolute go-to place for pro cyclists it's um been pretty noticeable this winter especially how many cyclists have been here especially um Brits there's been a lot of British riders here um this is my third winter here um the first winter that I was here there was a handful of us really um very very few and now it's yeah it's kind of you can't walk into the the coffee shop or the the meeting point let's say at 10 30 without seeing so many many riders it's been pretty amazing actually is that a good thing or do you sometimes just want to sort of get out of the pro cycling bubble a bit depends really um sometimes it was pretty overwhelming how many people were here i mean you you couldn't go out to dinner without seeing seeing people out um and for me, it's kind of when you live somewhere, you don't want to be constantly reminded of, I don't know, cycling, really. You want to go out for dinner and just be be you, really. Um, but then if if there's a, you want to go for a group ride, there's always someone to go with, which is quite nice, especially if you have a long training ride. Um, there's a really good good community of women cyclists here now as well, which is which has been really, really nice. And I've I've enjoyed having them and. Just being at a race is with someone that you you spend a lot of time with anyway. It's quite nice. Um, so yeah, I sometimes I've been like, oh, there's too many people here, but most of the time it's been pretty. It's been really nice. And pretty good roads around the uh, city to to ride. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason that so many people live here. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, you ride around and you can do three hours or four hours, but feeling like you've just done an hour riding. Um, it just makes the time go so much faster. And conveniently, Ian, there's um, a, actually a Girona city guide on our website uh, that's just gone up in the last couple of weeks. So if anybody's thinking of going over, um, tells you where to go and um, how to do it. So Hannah, how's the season going so far? Yeah, it's been really good. I mean, it's in Belgium, typical Belgian weather and terrain. I mean, it didn't come into last season how I'd like to. So now I've actually got the form that I wanted and I've trained really, really hard this, this winter. And I feel that my... My performances in the last two races I'm really happy with and yeah it's just kind of nice to have that confidence going into the next block of racing. I didn't see uh, Le Samin, uh, Hannah but I did watch some of Hageland and you were looking strong there and had a nice break working but it didn't it didn't pan out. It went up a cobble climb a really hard climb and I was at the at the front when that break went and it was a really good strong break but unfortunately it was just it was just too far from the line for everyone to be committed in, in it um and a few teams missed it as well, so they brought it back. Um, but I mean, I was giving the 
midway through this the race I was given the role of team leader and that's a position that I've not yet experienced in those kind of European races it was quite nerve-wracking being that that leader and I definitely have a lot of work to do to improve improve in being in that role um but no it was just it was a really great experience to to be there and can just use that momentum and motivation to keep going uh Kenny and SRAM are a really strong team which is a you know which is a great thing, but also, I guess, quite a challenge if you're fighting for a place on it. Yeah, I mean, there's 11 riders on the team now. Um, and, yeah, we've got a lot of strong riders. Um, so, yeah, you, you, those races that you really want to do, you kind of have to fight your teammates to do them. But, yeah, it's, the team are really good at picking riders that suit those races really well. And we can go into every race as um, a team that can win the race. So I think we just have to always focus on that and know that the team that's gone to that race is the one that's best suited for that. You've got um, Pauline Ferrand-Provo on the, on the team this year, who's, you know, she has the potential to get some good results for you, I guess. She hasn't raced since the Olympics and we were on team, team camp and she fitted in really, really well with the team. Um, it was, must have been really daunting because we had nine riders on the team. So it was Pauline coming into the team as the only new rider, only changed the team. Um, and then we had the, the Zwift rider, Leah, join the team after that, but yeah, for her to come into a team and she just she just joined it so well. Um, there was no no moments where she was didn't feel part of the team or we didn't feel like she wanted to be in the team. She was really happy there, and I think that's going to be really really good for her this year to to use that as kind of fuel for the fire. Tell us some more about the Zwift rider Leah because uh, a lot of people may not be familiar with her story, and it is a fascinating story. Yeah, um, so we, the Zwift Academy, if no one's heard of it, um, we had 1,200 women riders sign up for that. They all had to do test power tests and things, and whoever had the highest power and the best power and power to weight, I think it went off the most, um, would come down to 10 riders, and then they'd do more tests, and then we had three final riders would come on our training camp in December in Mallorca. That was the selection camp, I guess, who fitted into the team well, who seemed the most motivated, who liked it the most and who was the strongest. And Leah hit all of those, really. Leah's a distance runner, isn't she, who's converted to cycling. So I, I'm, am I right in thinking Hagelan was her first race? It was quite a shock. She was really nervous about going into it. Um, it's just a massive step for her. I mean, she did long distance running, um, got a lot of injuries and used riding as kind of the way to get better and re- do rehab. And then she just loved doing it like that. Um, but yeah, she she struggled with Hageland. It's such a, a hard race. It's narrow roads, typical Belgium racing. Um, she finished the race. She was about three and a half, four minutes down from the winner, which I was couldn't believe. <laughs> I punctured, I think, with 35k to go in the race, and I came past her, and I was amazed that she was in, still in contention with the in the race, still part of it. Um, and it was really great to see her progression over those just those two races. And I think, um, yeah, she proved that you can be strong and just train on the, the trainer, but then you can come into a race like that. And I mean, she was getting the hang of it. How do you think uh, women's racing and uh, the World Tour is, is looking this year? We've got, um, yeah, uh, domestically, we've got a expanded uh, women's tour of Britain, but uh, also I think yesterday or the day before it, it looks like we've lost la route de france um i think we were actually saying um driving to the airport on wednesday that this year is going to be really great we've got 
it's kind of, last year bowls were really dominant in the in the results but this year we've got so many teams that have so many strong riders we as a whole we need to really focus on the present and the future and just making this sport move forward and I think it I think it is and it's such a good time to be a female cyclist right now Obviously, you don't know your exact schedule, but um, is there a race you're really looking forward to this season? Uh, there's a few. I mean, the one days like Amstel and Liège, I think, are really a great addition to our calendar. Um, so I'm looking forward to those. And then, obviously, everyone loves the women's tour in June in Britain. I love going there because it, it makes you so proud to be British. It's uh, quite amazing racing through those villages and towns with all the school children on the side of the road and just all those fans. It's really amazing. And then... Yeah, going into the the nationals as well um, in the Isle of Man, it's going to be a really a really good race. And that's going to be a hard race as well, isn't it? It's a hard circuit. Yeah, is everyone saying, "Oh, we don't know the course yet," but it doesn't matter. You know, it's going to be hard, whatever. So my dad's coming out for the week as my my helper, so that's going to be really good. <laughs> we were saying earlier on that to the Canyon SRAM team kit is one of the most sort of admired in the peloton everyone likes the uh, likes the design but of course you haven't actually been wearing it much of uh, much of the time have you because you get to wear the the boring old white one with the red and blue stripes no it's uh, the national one is it's so good i love it everyone it's crazy the amount of comments i get on it that i think what makes it so great is just the just how minimalistic it is it's just it's just how it was it's just this the, the three stripes with three sponsor logos on it and I think that's what makes it so special everyone's like oh but it's white when it's raining like in the spring classics of course it's gonna it's gonna get dirty but we have that that training kit that's just um like the original kit but the I've got the blue and red of the kit on it which I think it looks so smart and just means you're not going to wreck that white the white kitten when you're training in the rain. I don't know if the, the listeners at home could hear there was a noise in the background earlier when, when we started the interview. That was actually Hannah's washing machine um, struggling <laughs> to get the white kit clean, um, yeah, apparently, think... allegedly. New bearings required. <laughs> yeah, it will get fixed soon. It's just uh, I actually turned it on and then went to bed for a little nap. <laughs> so I didn't hear it. <laughs> Uh, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Before you go, um, have you had a chance to look through the magazine and, and, and choose a favourite picture? Yeah, it's the Canyon Shram, uh, uh, well, the Canyon advert. Hannah, that's an advert. You're supposed to choose our beautiful photographer's work, not adverts. <laughs> but it is a beautiful picture. Yeah, OK. <laughs> yeah, you're, not, you're not choosing that just because it's a canyon by any chance, are you? No, no, not at all. We'll let you off with that one, Hannah. We'll let you off with that one. Good work on behalf of the sponsors. Um, Ian, anything that stood out for you? Um, I've gone for, for, for fairly personal reasons, I guess, in some respects, is on page uh, 83, it's um, a rather beautiful-looking um, Belgian house that belongs to former British champion Tim Harris, where hundreds of... Uh, cycling stars or not necessarily because not cycling stars when they first stayed there but you know people who eventually become stars have um stayed over the years and uh, i've been to that house myself and uh, it's, it's just a photo of this the front of the house with them um, with tim sat there on the doorstep tim and his partner just run it between them and they do a lot of work for the dave rayner fund as well and you'll you'll see them on the races they're always at the at the tour and at the tour of britain uh yeah, everybody knows Tim and Josh, don't they, Hannah? Yeah, I mean, I, I saw them on Sunday 
you know, you got you're riding to the sign on and they're just they're there supporting you and yeah, it's uh I was supported by them in twenty twelve and twenty thirteen, I think. Oh no, twenty fourteen. So yeah, I um they're a really great couple that I mean they've helped so many riders out get to get to where they are really and if it wasn't for their fund I mean I'm pretty sure I wouldn't be here now it's uh I spent 2012 in Holland and I, I would rely on that funding to buy food and drinks and a ferry crossing home to see see the family so yeah, I know how important it is I mean it's not like it's a massive amount of money is it but it's enough to for you to get by so that you don't have to yeah kind of worry about the absolute basics and you can focus on your racing yeah yeah definitely if hannah is allowed to choose an advert can i choose a cover it's the cover of the subscribers edition not the one that you can buy in um, wh smith's it's a really striking image and such an amazing color it's marshall Kappel's shot of the uh blue safety zone the the Cote d'Azur on the uh, Roubaix velodrome and it's just such a lovely picture and such a lovely color really really stands out so I'm gonna have that one and it's not because you're a trackie that, that it's not resonates I'm a trackie in the mere sight of the Cote d'Azur brings me out in uh, <laughs> palpitations no it's not so all that remains is the quiz on 17.1 what was the question we asked uh we asked at the 2006 Paris-Roubaix fifth place Tom Boonen was promoted second behind Fabian Cancellara. The other three riders in between were disqualified by the race jury. Why? I remember the question now, but I don't know the answer. You don't. The level crossing came down, and these three riders went through it. Leif Hoster, Peter van Pettigem, and Vladimir Gusev. Now I remember. Ah. And who's the winner? Uh, the winner is Barry Tolland from Galway. Lovely Galway. And what are we asking for 17.2? Uh... We are asking, in reference to um, Tim Harris's house in Belgium that I was talking about just a few minutes ago, um, there's this quote in the piece, you have to try and work out who the rider we're talking about is. Okay, here we go. The house has produced a number of British road champions, including, question mark, who prepared for his victory by sitting up till three o'clock in the morning, smoking cigars, drinking brandy and eating Spanish ham with Adam Blythe. I think we could probably guess the answer to that. Hannah, you're not allowed to. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, maybe. I don't know. It was a few years back. Um, the prize uh, for those who uh, wish to enter and uh, is a uh, rather lovely sort of grey ruler sweatshirt that we started doing recently, which have been going down well. Um, and you can enter via the website on the podcast page on the website. Okay, that's it for Ruler Podcast 17.2. Thanks to Ian Cleverly. Thanks to Timothy Everest. And thank you in Girona to Hannah Barnes. Thanks for joining us and good luck for the rest of the season. Thank you. That's it for this edition. Stay safe out there. We'll talk next time. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.